Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Stephen Knott, the author of The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, The Decline into Demagoguery, and the Prospects for Renewal. He's a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He's written seven books, including ones about Alexander Hamilton and George W. Bush. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Knott. Oh, thanks for having me, Evan. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, we're thrilled to have you. You've got a great presence on Twitter, and um, and your book is really interesting and thought-provoking. Before we get into the book, I just want to say this is our um, second week of our series on the presidency. Last week, we released two episodes, one on Donald Trump, the other on Joe Biden. By the time October is through, we're going to have released six episodes on the presidency on topics like the cabinet, campaigning, and whether the job is just too darn difficult for one person to do successfully. But this week with Dr. Nod here, we're going to examine what presidents say and how their words have lulled Americans into what Dr. Nod argues is an unreasonable expectation of what presidents can realistically accomplish. So first of all, Dr. Nod, your subtitle of the book is The Decline into Demagoguery and the Prospects for Renewal. What is a demagogue? So a demagogue is somebody who plays on the passions, on the emotions of the public, and also someone who flatters the people into thinking that this person is their friend. And um, it's, it's the opposite of appealing to the reason of the people, and instead, as I mentioned, appealing to their lowest passions in order to you know, achieve power. And frequently throughout history, these demagogues have appeared who portray themselves as the people's friend, who play on their emotions, and then once in power, turn on the people. And the American founders were very fearful of that type of character and tried to set up certain institutions and certain checks against the possibility of that happening. So I suppose this could be a person-by-person answer, but I do want to ask, um, in general, do presidents do this purposely, or is it the nature of the job? I think they do this uh, purposefully, uh, Evan, and I think, again, it's to um, solidify their power. Now, when I say they, I do want to make it clear, and I do point this out in the book, there are exceptions to this. There have been plenty of American presidents even a few in the 20th century who, would, I, I would argue, tried to avoid this practice and attempted to appeal to reason and tried not to play on the emotions of the public. They did not see their job as sort of stirring the pot and solidifying their base, but instead they saw themselves as a head of state whose one, one of their primary responsibilities was to serve as a unifying figure, well, somebody who would bring the people together. We're definitely going to get into uh, which presidents did and did not um, act as a demagogue. So uh, we've defined the term now. Let's go back to the beginning. Uh, You say, um, an office envisioned by George Washington as a source of national pride and unity has devolved into a force for division and discord. You say in the book that the founders understood that the more you expand the roles of the presidency, the more you diminish it. So how did Washington approach the presidency back in 1789, and what impact did Hamilton's Federalist Papers have on Washington's thinking? 
so Washington had read the Federalist Papers and had nothing but high praise for them. And of course, Hamilton was the author of the passages dealing with pre the presidency. Uh, but perhaps more importantly, Hamilton and Washington were in touch with one another as Washington approached his inauguration. And they spent a remarkable amount of time talking about things that today we might describe almost as style or how one should conduct oneself. And it's there that you see this uh, focus between both men on the importance of presidential dignity and on the importance of, uh, in a sense, acting as a head of state, staying above the fray, and serving as that unifying figure. And so once Washington assumes the presidency, he tries, and I think for the most part, succeed to staying above the sort of petty partisanship that will slowly kick in, but not because of anything that George Washington does. Was he ever tempted to break that sort of form? That's a, that's a terrific question, Evan. And he cer it certainly bothered him to no end that he, especially in his second term, becomes the target of partisan criticism, primarily from what we would call the, the Jeffersonians. And their newspaper accounts, which he believed were uh, painting him in a false light, uh, it just really got under his skin. And I think it was an incredible test of Washington's character for him not to punch back. And there are a few occasions where we have letters and documents that he wrote where he does punch back, but he never followed through in terms of delivering that to a newspaper or even responding to the person who had criticized him. So I think overall he succeeded in staying above the fray and in not eroding presidential dignity. But you say it didn't take long though for a crack to form in the idea of the presidency as a sharply constrained office, as you put it. Um, uh, Thomas Jefferson takes office in 1801, and you say that he shifts the presidency from a check on majority rule to a spokesman for an implementer of the majority's wishes. So describe what you mean by that, a check on majority rule to a spokesman for the majority. And so um, what's wrong with the majority? If 60% of the people want pizza, shouldn't we give it to them? Well, that's a, it's, a powerful, it's a powerful argument. Um, what's wrong with it, at least from the perspective of Hamilton, and I would say Washington as well, and, and some of the other founders, John Adams, um, was that the, the kind of tyranny that one needed to fear, perhaps most of all, was the tyranny of the majority. And so it's unpopular minorities who pay the price frequently uh, for the wishes of the majority. And you do begin to see that fairly quickly during the era of Jefferson and Jackson, where free blacks in the North are one by one sort of slowly disenfranchised. And it's just, this is because the white majority favored that. So I do think many of the founders, Jefferson excluded, had this healthy fear of the tyranny of the majority Jefferson always had this great faith in the wisdom of people, which is one of the reasons why he's such an attractive character. But I do think Hamilton and the others were right in assuming that Jefferson had perhaps a little too rosy a view of the majority and sort of discounted the potential for those tyrannical acts that throughout history's majorities have directed against minorities. So the, the problem then is that it becomes easy 
for the demagogue to stoke the majority. And if the majority wants something that's not so good, then it becomes kind of this dangerous echo chamber. That is correct. And that is, uh, I think, absolutely what one sees with the presidency of Andrew Jackson. Jefferson sort of opens the door to this uh, possibility of a demagogue becoming president with his devotion to uh, the majority should be able to govern and the president should serve as the spokesman for the majority. Jackson kicks the door wide open and just flat out says without any hesitation that not only should the majority govern at all time, it's the president's duty. He is the tribune of the people. He is the spokesperson of the people and he needs to implement their will. And any, any impediment to the will of the majority in Jackson's eyes was illegitimate. And that is completely taking the founders constitution and turning it on its head. You say they go from being the head of the state to the head of party. That is correct. And of course, I think we can argue, I mean, some people attribute Thomas Jefferson, they credit him with being the founder of the Democratic Party, which I think is a fair label, but certainly Andrew Jackson as well, again, building on uh, the Jeffersonian legacy, uh, creates this very powerful political party that is going to dominate American politics for much of the 19th century. So yes, it is, I think, par a party over country. It's um, perhaps even more dangerously, as I've said, it's the president serving as the spokesman for the people. And the people who paid the price for that were these unpopular minorities, including free blacks in the North and also Native Americans. Uh, Lincoln, as usual, is sort of this equalizer, this counterweight to to these um, passions. Um, he's all he's always sort of this ellipsis in American history because of his brilliance, um, his strength, the sober approach to his calling as the leader of this, you know, the the Union during this extraordinarily vicious war. Um, how does he fit into your narrative? here that there's this decline into demagoguery and then Lincoln comes in and you know you say that he rejected the principle of the majority um, that it should be the majority governing um, and that holding that certain precepts you say including the right to life and liberty were not subject to an up or down vote so what do you mean by all that and how does Lincoln fit into this idea of the declining presidency so Lincoln, of course, is an incredibly interesting character. Um, he is obviously a man of the people. I mean, he literally comes out of nowhere. Uh, Self-taught, certainly not someone that anyone could characterize as a member of any elite. Uh, so he's very much a man of the people. But um, Lincoln is also a man who believes that this regime, the United States of America, and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence stand for certain principles. And those principles are not subject to an up or down vote. And so one of those key principles for Lincoln is the passage in the Declaration referring to the fact that all men are, and women are created equal and they have these rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which they are born with. And in Lincoln's view, no majority can vote that up or down. That is a given. And those principles require uh, a president to defend them and to defend what we might call the rule of law. And so, yes, he's a man of the people. Yes, he's a remarkably 
eloquent and arguably our most literate president, so he certainly communicates with the people, but he makes it clear that certain issues are off limits to the majority. But you say that um, he feared the destructive effects of the politics of passion. So um, maybe I'll ask you to put him on the couch just a little bit. Why um, was he that way? What was within his character that made him say, um, we really should watch the way my words and the country's policies intersect? That's a terrific question. And I think one that Lincoln's biographers have wrestled with for quite some time. I will speculate here and say that this is a man, this is a boy who grows up uh, in very, for lack of a better term, primitive circumstances. Uh, from what we can tell, his father was not a particularly uh, learned man, and perhaps not even a particularly compassionate man. And it may well be that that frontier, semi-primitive upbringing uh, convinces Lincoln that there, there is this need for rules, for principles, uh, that no one should be allowed to violate. Now, of course, you couple that with Lincoln's uh, devotion to the law, to becoming a lawyer, and you put those two factors together, I think that's where you find at least some of the seeds of this man who is so committed to these principles and that they should never be subject to a public referendum. Mm. Uh, so then how do you square his willingness to suspend freedom of the press in certain parts of the U.S. with the contention that he understood the majority shouldn't crush the minority? Yeah, well, again, you know, this is a complex man who is confronted with an unparalleled crisis, an unequaled crisis in American history, uh, the disil disillusion of the Union, uh, the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans in that conflict. and um, Lincoln took these extraordinary measures of suspending habeas corpus, of clamping down on some press freedoms, particularly in those areas of the North where there were a lot of Southern sympathizers. Um, you can say it was a case of the ends justifying the means, and to some extent I think that's true, but Lincoln was always very cautious to say first that Congress would be asked to ratify these actions, and they did eventually, and secondly they were temporary and that when the crisis would pass, these uh, extraordinary measures would be lifted, which of course they were. So um, I grant you there's a bit of a contradiction there, but if any president had a reason to engage in what we call prerogative or emergency powers, uh, it was Abraham Lincoln. I don't think any president, including FDR, uh, confronted the type of grave crisis that Lincoln did. Mm. Um. The big turning point then comes um, maybe 40 or so years later. That's in the Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson era. So how does TR's bully pulpit start to craft the presidency to this idea of majority rule and not just majority rule, but the president can stoke the majority um, and can create his own majority? Um, you know, it's sort of this like, I can promise you the world if you'll just give me your vote. So how did TR and Woodrow Wilson sort of act in concert to create this bully pulpit presidency? So both of these men believe that the situation in the United States as the 20th century began was fraught with uh, dangers. And those dangers were sort of based on 
serious class differences between the wealthy in the United States and the millions of working class toiling Americans. They both came to the conclusion that the American system of separation of powers and checks and balances was tying the hands of the federal government far too much in terms of being able to take steps that would alleviate some of the inequities in American life. And so they both slowly but fairly surely begin to kind of chip away at, a, at any sort of reverence for or obedience to the Constitution and begin to argue that the president, and sort of citing the Jeffersonian-Jacksonian argument, the president is uniquely positioned as the sole elected national official to speak on behalf of these downtrodden masses. The only thing, of course, that stands in the way of those two men implementing their agenda are the powerful checks in place, both in the courts and in Congress. And so they begin to try to erode those checks and to erode the American people's reverence for the Constitution. And I think they elevate the presidency into an unsustainable, and I would argue, somewhat unconstitutional position. So if they could hear you talking right now, I mean, these are both intellectuals, they're both historians, they're both um, people, maybe they have different styles, and certainly they were, <laughs> they were um, uh, uh, differently spoken men. Um, but but uh, what would they say if if they could hear you saying, boy, you know, maybe maybe you maybe you damage the presidency? Um, so I guess the question then is, um, if there's something worth stopping, you know, and I'm thinking of Teddy Roosevelt here, like corporate greed, he might say, you know, maybe it was worth me bending the presidency to do that. Uh, that's that's right, Evan. That I think that is exactly what what he would say. And uh, Wilson, I think, would echo that view as well. Um, and I do, I hope, try to wrestle in the book. I do not dismiss their uh, concerns about these inequities. And some even suggested that the United States was moving perhaps towards some type of revolutionary state. Uh, the situation was so dire. I, I guess, but what I might retort uh, to both of them with is I think they could have taken some steps in the form of increasing regulation of private industry and corporate power without at the same time trashing, and that may be a little bit too strong, but I don't think so, trashing the founding, trashing the idea of separation of powers, uh, in some cases, uh, trashing the judicial, judicial branch. Um, and so, you know, what we needed, I think, were moderate progressives, those who were willing to acknowledge that perhaps some changes, changes needed to take place. But I think it could have been done within the context of the Constitution. It could have been done without the demagoguery that you particularly see T.R. engage in when he runs in 1912 as a bull moose candidate. I mean, his rhetoric is really over the top just in terms of dismissing the Constitution and dismissing checks and balances. You know, so, I, I, go ahead, Evan. Well, I, I wish that I had pulled the quote before this because I'm just thinking of it now, but there is a quote where TR basically says, you know, I wish the, I wish the bomb would go off in Congress so that I wouldn't have to be bothered with these people anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, that is exactly right. And that's the kind of, look, I mean, the thing is, we can sit here and praise Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson's desire to take some of the harsh edges off of capitalism. 
The problem is, though, when you elevate the presidency to such a position and when you erode the importance of checks and balances, you know, it's not a big of a leap to say that Wilson and TR paved the way for some later presidents, some might even argue Donald Trump, um, who don't perhaps have any regard for the limits on their power. And that's the danger. I immediately think of um, Woodrow Wilson saying, let's make the world safe for democracy. And then it reminds me of George W. Bush saying, terrorism can be eradicated. Um, we can uh, wipe it off the face of the earth, I think was the quote. Um, this is a point in history where presidents start to really grow these kind of like outsized powers, or at least they say they're, they say they're growing them. And I, I'm reminded of like a scene in a movie where a superhero looks at his growing, you know, hands or, or something like that, the growing wings out of his back. Um, is this the moment here where these big pronouncements start to be made? No question, Evan. Um, both men, T.R. And, and Woodrow Wilson, begin... They elevate the idea that it's the president's responsibility, not just to sort of implement the will of the majority, but to shape that will. Uh, and to, they begin to use public relation techniques to shape public opinion. And they begin to, I would say, put that almost as job one. And so as a consequence of that role of the president as opinion shaper, you begin to see a whole series of presidents in the 20th century who use the kind of inflated rhetoric that you just referred to. They begin to talk about, you know, wars on drugs, wars on cancer, wars right. on poverty. They use the war metaphor and they wrap themselves. We're going to go to the moon and yeah, we're going to go to the moon. We're going to explore the stars and conquer the deserts and eradicate disease That's and explore. Right. That's right. That's right. It's quite a list. Yeah, and that it's was just one guy, <laughs> just one president who said all that. Um, That's right. uh, we, we, we would be remiss if we didn't um, examine Woodrow Wilson a little bit more here um, when it comes to the tyranny of the majority. So how does the tyranny of majority under Wilson end up costing African-Americans? Well, of course, Wilson, he's, uh, other than Grover Cleveland, there are only two Democratic presidents between Lincoln and um, Warren Harding, and Wilson is one of them. He's a son of the South. One of his earliest memories was seeing Confederate veterans marching in a parade. Uh, I think we can safely say that Wilson's eight years in office were a terrible time for African-Americans. Wilson reverses a lot of the progress, you know, and it hadn't been a tremendous amount of progress, but there had been some uh, pushed in part by the federal government. So Wilson resegregates various cabinet offices, the post office, for instance. Um, you know, he just refuses to sort of meet, well, he meets with African-American organizations like the NAACP, but they're very frosty meetings. I think we can safely say that this is one of our most racist presidents. And again, you see that in his policies, you see that in his reluctance to condemn lynching. You see that in the fact that he welcomes the director of the birth of a nation to the White House, to premiere the film. And that film, of course, is one of the most racist films ever produced in American history. So this is, this is a president who speaks for the white majority, but certainly not for the African-American minority. Uh, so if you fast forward now um, a couple of decades, um, we run into FDR, and I don't think there's any question that he is the most successful, if one accepts 
your definition of the term demagogue, that he would be the most successful president at harnessing the power of the presidency into the power of, or into the, what you would call the tyranny of the majority. And I'm not using that as a, uh, as a, a, a negative description. I'm just saying that would fit your definition, it seems like. So the, the question I have is, what does FDR see in the presidency that makes him say to himself, I can use this office to literally put money in people's pockets, to literally um, change the entire role that the government plays over the next probably 70 years until we get to Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think FDR being a good Democrat, and I, I hope people aren't getting the message here, this is a pro-Republican book. I have plenty of criticism for some Republican presidents as well. But building on the tradition of Jefferson and Jackson, that the president needs to speak for the majority, needs to defend the, the, the majority against entrenched elites, which is a the theme of both Jefferson and Jackson's presidency, and building on the legacy of his distant cousin, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, um, FDR, and look, I, you know, he's another one that I had to wrestle with because FDR is confronted with a whole series of crises that pale only in comparison to Lincoln's situation. So I acknowledge that this man arguably saved American capitalism, arguably put together an incredible team to conduct the Second World War. But again, there were times when he engaged in that kind of demagoguery regarding separation of powers, and in particular against the Supreme Court, uh, packing the court, and using rhetoric that was really over the top in terms of condemning the role of the judiciary in the American system of separation of powers. I don't think he had to do that. Now, I, I know they were blocking a lot of his initiatives, but the whole point of the American system is change needs to take time. Uh, this was not a system that was supposed to emphasize efficiency. It emphasized liberty, and the courts were there to protect the rights of individuals. And when you start eroding those rights because you think you're doing the right thing, and I have no doubt he thought, FDR thought he was doing the right thing, you've got to think about the long-term consequences of those actions. Does, does America win World War II, though, if he doesn't act the way he does? Uh, terrific question. I mean, one of the praise, I praise FDR for being on to the threat of fascism, in particular Hitler well before most of his fellow citizens. And he does everything he can in a covert manner to keep Great Britain alive before we actually enter the war. And then, as I said, he puts together a remarkable national security team, Eisenhower, Patton, Nimitz, Halsey, etc., cetera, um, that, that conduct this war in a remarkably successful way. So I have nothing but praise for the way Franklin Roosevelt manages the Second World War. Again, I just wish he, and, and not only does he target the courts for a kind of over-the-top, with a kind of over-the-top rhetoric, he did have a tendency to portray the Republican Party as sort of enemies of the regime. And in 1944, he literally compares the Republicans to fascists in Europe. Hmm. Um, I need to check my math because, <laughs> because I said 70 years. It's really more like 40 years. And this is not yeah. the first math mistake that I have made that's, on this program. That's okay. I'm um, not a math major, so don't worry. Here. Uh, neither am I. Um, uh, let's talk about uh, big promises and, and JFK. 
uh, uh, I just quoted some of them. Um, he literally says, we're going to end thirst and hunger. Um, and, you know, he says we're going to go to the moon and we're going to conquer the stars or whatever, conquer the deserts and all this sort of incredible language that has stayed with us and, and has been part of now, you know, the American lexicon. So I, I guess when it comes to JFK, I would just ask, what's wrong with making big promises? Um, don't leaders need to inspire to lead? Or is that a chicken and the egg question um, that goes back to, well, they didn't, <laughs> we didn't think they needed to inspire this way until presidents started doing that. Um, but anyway, what's wrong with making big promises? Well, it certainly is appealing. And the American public, I think, have shown a propensity to buy into big promises. Uh, unfortunately, the downside is that frequently the federal government is unable to deliver on those promises. Now, we did make it to the moon. And, you know, all praise to JFK for setting that goal and providing the resources needed to carry it out. It's when you make promises like man can be as big as he wants and no problem of human nature is beyond man's reason. You know, we can solve anything. And what happens is, you know, you can't. And we, we can't. Human beings are flawed. The programs, the initiatives we produce are bound to be flawed. You cannot achieve everything you set out to do. And as moved as we might be by that kind of stirring, reaching rhetoric, what happened, I think, in the wake of Kennedy and Johnson was they overpromised. They talked about abolishing poverty, poverty by the mid-1970s. Uh, and what happened was cynicism towards the federal government and towards the American presidency began to increase dramatically. People just get annoyed. Why aren't you delivering on these promises? Yeah. I thought we were going to save the world. Yeah, exactly. And the founders understood, you know, Hamilton especially, even though he was in favor of an energetic federal government, he thought that that federal government should focus on matters related to war and peace, foreign relations, international trade, and sort of providing a framework for entrepreneurs to flourish. But that's it. And I think even Hamilton, who favored an energetic government, if he were to come back today, he would say, look, you're trying to do too much. One of my favorite authors, perhaps my favorite author, other than you, of course, um, is Robert Caro. And uh, Robert Caro argues that the Lyndon Johnson presidency is um, the turning point. Um, before that, you have this golden era of presidents. You have FDR, you have Truman, you have Eisenhower, you have Kennedy, you have these tremendously serious men who all have distinguished careers, and they all um, leave the presidency um, in pretty decent standing with the American people. Now, uh, maybe that's a bit of a compression because certainly Tr Truman's reputation took years to rehabilitate, but you have several legends, maybe three of the four leave the presidency almost as legends. Um, you know, you have FDR, you have Eisenhower, and then of course you have Kennedy. Um, and then Johnson comes along and people really get fed up and this starts to turn the American people against the presidency itself. And um, Carroll argues that you have, um, you know, uh, after Johnson, you have Nixon and you have, you know, the, uh, the years of Carter where there's this malaise and everything, and that the presidency is never really able to resuscitate itself, um, at least following uh, those, uh, those leaders. So how does that theory fit into yours 
which is that the decline into demagoguery really accelerates after the Kennedy-Johnson years. Well, I, I mean, it sounds like Caro's thesis is, is an impressive one. I think I might differ with him. I, I would say that the seeds of the decline are planted long before. Sooner, yeah. yeah. And, um, well, obviously, that's the whole thesis of the right. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it was simply unsustainable to make the kind of pledges. You know, Woodrow Wilson saying, the president is free to be as big a man as he wants to be. Well, that may be okay if you're Woodrow Wilson or Franklin Roosevelt, but it's a problem. Not everybody has that kind of temperament, has that kind of intellectual um, bona fides. You are opening the door to demagogues and you are opening the door to increased public cynicism because you're promising the world, as John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson did. And so, um, but those seeds are planted long before mm -hmm. John F. Kennedy is killed in Dallas and Lyndon Johnson takes over. How do you then divide up these um, last 40 years or so in terms of presidential eras? Um, you know, you've got Reagan and he's often seen as a defining president. Um, but then, you know, you have Clinton and, and, and you have... Uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama and then Donald Trump. So how do you um, sort of navigate these last few presidencies and how they um, acted as demagogues or not? So I see I've, I've basically lumped all of those presidents together in one chapter, although I put Trump in his own chapter because I do believe he's he is set apart from his predecessors during the Cold War and post-Cold War era. They are all building off of, with the possible exception of Dwight Eisenhower and Gerald Ford, they're building off of this rhetorical, popularized, personalized presidency that puts all of its stock in the personal characteristics, the charisma of the president, and sort of slights his constitutional or his head of state responsibilities. So they all fall, they've all adopted the Wilsonian TR conception of the presidency. Uh, and so I don't spend a lot of time talking about these men because again, they're all pretty much cut from the same cloth, except they simply adjust to the latest technology that allows them to shape public opinion, or you might even say manipulate public opinion. And then we get to the current president. Um, where does the current president, he's on the cover of your book, uh, where does Donald Trump fit into the decline into demagoguery? Well, my chapter on Donald Trump is not very sympathetic. I do qualify it by saying that, as you mentioned earlier, Evan, you know, Truman and Eisenhower are good examples. We didn't get a full understanding of their presidency until 20 or 30 years after they left office. So there's always the possibility that there's more going on behind the scenes than we uh, see through day-to-day -day media reports. Having said that, I doubtful of that in President Trump's case. I doubt we're going to find that he was an Eisenhower-style hidden hand president. Um, but, you know, I see Trump as the ultimate fulfillment of this idea that the president needs to be the mouthpiece of the majority, or at least the majority of the, the people who elected him, who emphasizes the partisan pot-stirring, firing up the base role at the expense of the head of state, 
unifying role, who lacks a certain magnanimity of character, who cannot acknowledge anything good in his opponents. Uh, I, you know, in my view, Trump is Wilsonianism on steroids. And, uh, but the fact is, I think we should have seen this coming a long time ago. And I wish I could be more optimistic that we won't go down this path again. But to be perfectly honest, once you knock down a tradition, it's really hard to get it back. And I think you will see a Trump-like character, either on the right or on the left, uh, in the future. Prospects for renewal. That is um, on the cover of your book. Uh, You say presidents make a difference. The way they conduct themselves affects everything. They can choose to unite or divide, to appeal to what binds us or to wallow in partisan or ideological slights. It's in their grasp to reach for something higher, but presidents can't do this alone. So what do we have to do as voters? What are the prospects for renewal? Um, I think there are some things the parties, the political parties could do in terms of presidential selection that would contribute to getting us out of this, what I see as a destructive situation in terms of the presidency. Um, But that would require the American public to tolerate a certain amount of uh, decision-making by so-called elites, party leaders. Um, And so I favor things like superdelegates who are chosen by party leaders in Congress and elsewhere. That might allow some of the characters who are not particularly up to the job to be winnowed out. Again, we have democratized the situation presidential selection so much that um, the power that party leaders used to have to wean out unfit characters is just gone. So you had a scenario in 2016 where Bernie Sanders, who was not a member of the Democratic Party, came very close to winning the nomination of a party that he didn't belong to. And Donald Trump, whose past record wouldn't indicate any Republican affiliation, did win that nomination. That's a system that's out of control. That's a system that lacks filters to weed out incompetent characters. That's one thing we could do. But I would say ultimately, Evan, it's on us, the American people, to stop buying into rhetoric that flatters us or that appeals to our prejudices and our passions, to stop believing that the federal government can do anything it puts its mind to, and to have a more limited, constrained view of the role of the president and the role of the federal government and have a limited and constrained view of what we should expect of that government. Dr. Stephen Knott, the author of The Lost Soul of the American Presidency, The Decline into Demagoguery, and The Prospects for Renewal. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Evan. It was terrific. Well, certainly check out that book and also his Twitter, which is at Pubilus57. Next week, we're going to be back with the next in our series on the presidency, an interview with Lindsay Chervinsky, who wrote a book called The Cabinet, which examines how George Washington formed his cabinet and how he laid the contours for the way that it works today. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Twitter and Instagram at Axel Bank History. We update those with clips from the show guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.